Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is the fourth and final part of my interview with Mary Rice Hassan, Director of the Catholic Women's Forum at the Ethics Public Policy Center. In our last session, Mary explained and critiqued the so-called Equality Act. In this session, she discusses the role of the Catholic Church in combating gender ideology. So welcome back, Mary, to our fourth interview here. And in this interview, I'd like to talk about the response of the Catholic Church to gender ideology. So first off, how would you assess the response of the Catholic Church uh, to gender ideology to date? And, and specifically first, I'd like to talk about the leadership of the church. So Vatican response, U.S. bishops' response, as we sit here today, how do you, how do you assess their response? Well, let's start with the top. I, I think uh, you have to give Pope Francis a lot of credit for being very vocal right from the beginning of his papacy in talking about the dangers of what he calls the ideology of gender, gender ideology. Mm -hmm. And he has spoken about it uh, close to a dozen times that I've got record of where he has highlighted the fact that it is unconscionable to tell children something that's not true to reinforce this idea that they're not male or female, they can choose to be whoever they want. He has reinforced the idea that this ideology is really an attack on marriage because once you deny the difference between male and female, uh, you're denying a whole anthropology and that, that our anthropology, Christian anthropology, is based on the truth of the body and human nature, that males and females are made from one another. We come together and we have children. You know, there's an anthropology there, but at the heart of that is the design that we're created male and female. So he's, he's highlighted that. He's also demonstrated tremendous compassion to individuals who are suffering, whether it's uh, providing financial resources for uh, adults who identify as transgender and, and are work in the streets and during the COVID situation were, were really struggling that the Vatican provided some financial resources to make sure these, um, these men, again, who identify as women, were, were fed and cared for. He also has reached out to individuals who are struggling with some of these issues of identity. So he's, he's been a model in terms of um, showing that we can be compassionate to the person and and meet their immediate specific need as well as looking for the long-term good of their their soul. At the same time, he's been unequivocal at, at calling out the evil that underlies and is at the heart of this ideology. Because in one of his quotes, he said that um, gender ideology was wicked and was a global war on marriage and the family. I mean, that's that's strong language, and I give him credit because powerful I think, language, yeah, yeah. He has really highlighted that issue, and Pope Benedict before him spoke about uh, the same problem back in I want to say it was 2012, and and he talked about it from an anthropological standpoint. He didn't use that phrase, that same phrase, gender ideology, but he did talk about ideology. He did talk about the denial of of human nature and the, the truth, the anthropological truth about who we are. So on that level, the church has has really been has has shown good leadership. There have been a number of documents from uh 
Laudato Si, to Amoris Laetitia, to uh, the Vatican Congregation for Education, coming out with the document Male and Female, that have have given specific language and guidance, emphasizing the truth of the person and the dangers of gender ideology and and the flaws of that. So uh, on that level, it's that's been really good, very strong. Uh, now, when there have also been some confusing signals. about the U.S. bishops, uh, yeah, the U.S. bishops, I, I think, um, and sort of a little disclaimer here: I'm I'm on uh, a consultant to the bishops' committee on lady marriage, youth, and family, and and the bishops that I've spoken to have been so strong; they see the issue clearly. They um, are working to do what they can to educate Catholics to highlight the problem. And I think there are a couple of things for people to realize. One, the USCCB is, does not have power in that sense, right? Every bishop makes decisions for his diocese. So the USCCB can issue guidance and, and can put out some good things. They have a great page that um, has resources on marriage and on gender ideology. So in terms of, of education, they're, they're really trying to encourage that. As far as the Within dioceses, I see a tremendous difference. It's like a, a checkerboard. Uh, some of the bishops have been very engaged, and they've they've looked for ways to educate their teachers, their DREs, their people doing marriage prep, because this is coming up in in all these different arenas. Youth ministers, and you need your your front lines of the faith, your, your ambassadors, but your, your frontline communicators from the teachers, the youth ministers, the, you know, to be able to understand, but also answer that first question. When you have a teenager who says uh, to a youth minister, they trust, you know, I, I think I'm trans. What does that youth minister say? Have they had guidance from the diocese, from the pastor to help them understand the truth about the person and to know how to both affirm the dignity of, of that young teen in front of them, how to show love and compassion and care, and yet to begin to ask the questions and give them the knowledge to help move them in a different direction, you know, towards, towards a direction that really is uh, going to lead to their flourishing, not to lead them on this path towards harm. Unfortunately, I wish I could say that Every diocese was on the mark and, and doing a great job here, but it, it's just not true. I think there are some bishops who, for whom uh, this issue just has not risen to the top of, of their agenda or something. And, and, and I'm not quite sure why, because I think when you look at it in terms of, of the theology and the challenge, it is such, gender ideology is such a deep challenge to the whole idea of who we are, that a child who buys, or an adult who buys into this idea of gender identity, that you can self-define, is someone for whom it's going to be very hard to help them understand the importance of the incarnation, to understand God as creator, uh, the theology of the body. All those things are thrown into question because they've accepted a premise that's incompatible with that. Uh, and, and then at the same time, on a pastoral level, I think bishops, perhaps those who have, who have not responded so far, uh, some of them maybe have a little bit of a misdirected compassion. You know, there's a, a lot of noise out there in the culture about, oh, the Catholic Church needs to 
um, be more welcoming to people who identify as LGBTQ. And, and to me, that's because I work in the policy arena, that's a smokescreen, right? That's, that's a, uh, a way to obscure the issue because I, I just don't know of people who are mean or cruel to someone who is identifying as LGBT. I, I just don't see that within the institutional church. But there are people who identify as part of those communities who take it personally when, for example, as the Vatican came out and said, you can't do a blessing for a same-sex couple. And they take that as personal insensitivity or whatever. But but their quarrel really there is not with an individual not being compassionate or the church not being compassionate. They don't like the the truth of the matter. And and that's a call right. for more conversation exactly. and, and interior conversion. There's an opportunity there. Um but I, I think to those bishops who who perhaps think all we have to do is welcome and make people come in and they'll, they'll feel good and, and know that they're loved. Well, that's true. But if you love someone, you want to help them live by the truth because you have to be convinced. And this is perhaps the piece they don't see. You have to be convinced of the harm, the really serious harm to a person, especially a young person who is drawn in by the transgender narrative and accepts this idea they can self-define their, their identity as whoever they want it to be. Their body is really nothing more than a tool, this thing that they get to do whatever they want with. I, there's great harm in going down that path, as, as well as the harm that comes by omission. You're not dealing with whatever are the roots of that person's um, woundedness. So so my hope and my prayer is that those bishops who have not yet engaged on this issue will will think seriously and and understand that it's it's not a question of affecting only the 2% of the population that's identifying as transgender because this this ideology is coming from the government from business from schools from corporate policies you know everyone has to take these sensitivity trainings it is affecting everyone it's affecting our language. It's affecting how we think. It's affecting our belief about uh, what's true about ourselves and where's the place of religion. So this is, you can't underestimate the great damage that's being done to the church, to individuals, to families by the advance of gender ideology. Yeah. Uh, as, as you were speaking, I, I was thinking. Um, I mean, we are well aware of you know there are publicly there are bishops who have who have stood up very strongly against gender ideology. There are bishops who quietly have stood up against gender ideology, but then there's those who don't say anything. And just bringing this to a practical um, issue, one of the things that we have said at the NCBC is, I mean, we're, we're dealing with Catholic healthcare particularly. Um, the ethical and religious directives say nothing about gender ideology or any of these things. And now the ERDs are not, it's, it's not an authoritative document. As you said, I mean, the, the USCCB is not an authoritative body. Bishops are, bishops are the authorities within their diocese. But what we hear from people, even within Catholic healthcare is, well, the bishops haven't said anything about any of these things. And so we, we'll, you know, we'll either do or refer for the affirming psychotherapy or the hormones and maybe in, uh, and maybe more, who knows? Um, but that's, you know, that lack of response from the bishops as a whole has had very um, practical and I would say negative consequences as well. Yeah. Although 
part of me wants to push back on that, not, not on the truth of what you're saying, but to those who say, well, the church hasn't said anything. I mean, that's not true because the mm-hmm. church is very clear about its anthropology. And it's very clear that gender ideology conflicts with this. So when you get down to, to the specific decisions about whether a Catholic healthcare institution should participate in or, or allow or facilitate what's called, quote, gender affirming uh, therapies or interventions, if you look at the data, the data is not there to support the idea that this right. You know, does something good for the person. So even if you took the theology out of it, if they've got to stop listening to the politicized um, medical organizations, you've got the AMA, the Endocrine Society, the American Academy of Pediatrics, who have all weighed in in support of gender affirming interventions. But when you look at those specific actions, their statements are written by subcommittees that are politicized, the LGBT right. you know, subcommittee or sexual and gender minority subcommittee. It's not approved by the membership. They're political documents. And, and so that should be a red flag waving. Um, but again, the church has taught who we are. The church tells physicians about their, uh, you know, the bioethical imperative to first do no harm, you know, second to make sure that you're doing something that's objectively good. You can't do something bad for a good reason. And, you know, there's a, there's a moral analysis that the NCBC, I think, has done an excellent job with a number of the articles that have been out. And I think you've got a book coming out on this that, you know, those who are in Catholic healthcare leadership need to educate themselves, not be content with looking at the secular politicized documents that are just designed to put a gloss on this and, and to green light it. Because again, unfortunately, there's a lot of money that's being made off the exploitation of people's woundedness. Absolutely. So Mary, moving forward, what specifically do you think our church leaders need to do with regard to gender ideology? I would like to see uh, in every diocese, there be a specific statement that is um, a guidance document to schools, to parishes, to institutions that come under the diocesan authority, just reaffirming the truth about the person, specifying things, uh, directions the diocese will not go in terms of pronoun use or, or allowing someone who is a male, let's say, to identify as female and sort of be treated as a female in, in those contexts, that we need to be specific because that has an education value to it, number one. Number two, and these aren't in order of priority, but that's that's a key one. You know, laying it out educates people. Number two, the transparency is good because I think when there's ambiguity, people are unsure. And so if we're transparent about who we are, if someone doesn't want to enroll their kid in Catholic school because of these provisions... Um, or they don't want to go to a Catholic hospital because it's clear we don't facilitate uh, these gender interventions. Well, okay, they can find someone who suits their um, their desires better. But that transparency is good because there's an integrity that's part of that. Part of integrity is being transparent, be who you are, guided by your principles, and then be accountable for that. So I do know of situations where, for example, there are Catholic hospitals that are not following even the ethical um, directives. And and some bishops sort of shrug and it's like, what can I do? Well, I think you need to 
you need to address that. You need to be out and open and um, forceful and uh, be willing in some cases, whether it's a school or, or a hospital to say, you know what, you can't use the word Catholic if you're not going to abide by what the church really stands for. And we saw that in Indianapolis, you know, the Bishop of Indianapolis, I, I mm-hmm. applaud his courage because he was willing to do that in terms of when a, a dispute related to these issues arose in uh, Catholic schools in his diocese. He said, it means something to be Catholic. If you're going to call yourself Catholic, right. you have to abide by what the church teaches. So, so that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see every diocese create policies, have the bishops take a leadership role, not with the idea of condemning someone who's not there. I mean, these issues are affecting our families, Catholic families, but with the idea of uh, people need to know the truth. And right now, if they're hearing silence from the church, then you know who fills that space? It's the woke ideology. It's the the gender ideology. It's the you know everything coming through the media. Through it's like a fire hose, and we've got to. It's not enough to say, "Would you please aim that <laughs> that fire hose in a different direction?" We need to help them uh, get out of the way, but also fill them up with the truth so that they know what's right. Um, and then uh, a final thought is is this that especially under the Biden administration, we are going to see gender ideology pushed at an accelerated rate through the public schools. And I would love to see the bishops of today do what the bishops did back in the 1880s or 90s, which was to say, every child who wants a Catholic education is going to have one. And we're going to make that possible because right now, you know, I hear the, the laments and the, um, the devastation of families who feel like they have no alternative typically because of finances and their kids are in public school and they find out six months after the fact that their child has been introduced to gender ideology, has decided they're transgender and has been facilitated down this path by school officials because um, many of the schools have the policy that they're not going to tell the parents that they're just going to help the child along the way. And, and the Biden administration is very much supporting that, that stance. So our families, Catholic families, the future of the church, which is by and large Hispanic and the Hispanic kids are by and large in the public schools. They are the ones being corrupted by this ideology. They are the ones being damaged by this, who are, who are being led to harm and at the very least have their faith weakened because they're they're drinking in an anthropology utterly incompatible with Christian anthropology. So making Catholic education a viable alternative for every child uh, would be tops on my list. I hope there's some bishops listening. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about church leadership. What responsibilities do Catholic lay faithful? And and we'll add others of goodwill as well. We don't have to be Catholic or um, others too. But what responsibilities do Catholic lay faithful have in response to gender ideology? I think one, treat every person you encounter with compassion. You know, no matter where they're coming from on these issues or if they're they're struggling with these issues, we have to live uh, what we believe. And so 
one, just be convicted of that and examine your own conscience. Two, educate yourself about the issue. And our website, personandidentity.com, is specifically designed for parents, for parishes, for schools, to find the information you need to educate yourself, to educate others about the truth of the person, but also what this gender ideology means, how it's being pushed, uh, what the harms are from it, things like that. So um, educate yourself, educate others, and then be willing to speak up. Because my my experience in speaking about this in all sorts of fora and, and in different parts of the country has been that when someone is bold enough to speak the truth, it only takes a couple of minutes before the, you know, the people listening, they'll look to the right and the left, and then they'll start nodding. It's like they become emboldened by hearing someone standing up for what they know is true. I can't tell you how many, quote, off-the-record conversations I've had with people who say, I think this is nuts, this is crazy, this is harmful, but they won't speak out publicly because we live in such a cancel culture. So I think you have to be prudent because of that factor, but use your own sphere of influence. Do you talk to your children? Do you talk to your your siblings? Do you talk to your parents? Some older people are being led astray on this. You know, do you... Everyone has people they can influence, but we need to stand up for the truth. Absolutely. As we bring this uh, four-part interview to a close, I'd like to return kind of to where we started, and it's with the Person and Identity Project, which you mentioned. And and once again, I want to wholeheartedly recommend that people go to personandidentity.com and 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 see the resources you have. It's an absolutely fantastic resource. But going back to that. Um, Mary, what advice would you give to parents or grandparents or whomever who contact you saying they have a child, they have a grandchild, they have a niece, they have a nephew who claims to be transgender? What do you say to them? Yeah, I'd say, uh, first of all, you know, we love you. We're here for you because I think sometimes families who are experiencing this feel ashamed or like people are going to assume they did something wrong. And I'll tell you the force of the, the cultural pressure on this is so great. It's uh, None of us should be looking at a family that has a kid who's struggling with these things and, and think they, they somehow, quote, did something wrong because uh, many of them are, are wonderful families. Sometimes there are things going on in the family which, which create wounds that make a child vulnerable because we do know that um, among children who identify, as children and adolescents who identify as transgender or non-binary or whatever, there's a high proportion who already are suffering from mental health issues, at least half, sometimes higher percentages, depending on the study. So they've already got depression, they've already got anxiety, they may have ADHD. Uh, the number of kids who are on the autism spectrum, and that in studies, it ranges from you know, 5 to 6% to close to 30% of kids within the study populations who are claiming to be transgender, but who are on the autism spectrum. And, and therefore, many of them are um, kind of, the kids are susceptible and vulnerable to thinking that the reason why they don't fit in is because they're transgender. The reason why 
uh, they are, have a discomfort with their body is because they're transgender. And parents of children who are on the autism spectrum have said to me that they know that their kids very easily fixate on certain things or, or are susceptible to rigid thinking. And that very much uh, is an angle that the whole transgender myth, the ideology appeals to. It gives them a black and white solution. Well, you're a boy, but no, you're really a girl. And here's the promised land. The solution is to go this way. Uh, so that's a long way of, of saying that there are a lot of reasons why a child and or young adult can be drawn into this. So families who are experiencing this, the families themselves are going through a lot, the siblings, the parents, and they need to know they have the support of the church they have our care and concern. And then practically speaking, well, what do you do? Um, there's a new book out that's called Desist, Detrans, and Detox. We have it listed on our website, but it's by a woman named Maria Keffler. And she has worked with uh, many, many families and therapists on this issue and finally wrote a book kind of pulling it all together. That uh, It literally, in some of the, the chapters, it says... It has suggestions for here's how you can broach this part of the the problem with your child. Here's what you can expect to hear from them. And it, it sort of gives an, a chronology that many of these children and young adults will go through. So the parents oftentimes feel fortified if they know what to expect. And they realize um, there's unfortunately sort of a pattern here because this is an ideology that just literally grabs hold. But I think also it's important for parents, grandparents to be in touch with other families who are experiencing this. So one outreach is uh, the Encourage chapters, you know, Courage, which is the apostolate to families, um, individuals who are experiencing same-sex attraction or their families is Encourage. Uh, there are many, many families now who are experiencing uh, issues with a child or a loved one that stems from identity conflicts who are reaching out and becoming part of encouraged chapters because you need to be, you need um, that spiritual support. You need the perspective of others. Uh, you need fortification because it's very hard when the medical profession, the, the political players, the business community, the media, everyone is telling you you're doing the wrong thing when you're trying to help a child right reintegrate their identity with their body. So you need fortification. Um, and then, you know, we have a lot of resources on our, on our website. I think also in many respects, uh, good therapy is helpful both for the individual who's caught in this, but also for family members. But the caveat there is if someone calls themselves a, a gender clinician or a gender therapist or something, run, run in the other direction. That is right, not yeah. someone who's yeah you know, lead you or in a, a, down a path that is going to be conducive to health and, and flourishing. It's, it's completely the wrong direction, but there are, um, there are good therapists available. We have some references. I'm sure if people reach out to, to you, you would have some suggestions as well. So yeah, we do too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I always turn to NCBC whenever I'm looking for the specific um, application of a teaching or a doctrine or, or something, particularly in the bioethical arena, it's just such a gift and such a service. So uh, I think that can be helpful to parents too, when you're 
a child says, well, I want, I want that surgery or I want these, these hormones to be able to go and to find right. specific guidance on that from people like you. Yeah. Mary, what was the name of that book? Was it Desist, Detrans, Detox? Is that, was that it? Yeah. Uh, I think it's, yeah, I don't have it in front of me. um, Yeah, I think it's Desist, Detrans, and Detox. But the author is Maria Kepler, K-E-F-F-L-E-R. And I know her, she's a fantastic person. I've worked alongside her on many of these issues, particularly with regards to schools and and things like that. So yeah, yeah, it's, an excellent book. Always, we always want to make sure people are aware of good resources that are out there. So, Mary, over the uh, over the time that we've spent, you've said a lot of words of wisdom, and I thank you very much for for those that you've given us. But, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? I'd say pray. You know, if you're a family that you're experiencing this, uh, whether you personally or someone you love, you need to be close to the heart of Christ. You need to lean on and be wrapped up in the loving arms of of Mary, our mother. And so I encourage you, you know, take, take your, your deepest worries and fears and, and thoughts and bring them before the Lord in the blessed sacrament and, and just be there and know that he loves the person you love. He loves them even more than you do. And you can trust him with their life and open yourself up to hear what you need to hear. So I, I think, you know, we've talked so much about practical things, but I think that's the note that I would close on that, that the Lord's love is immense. The power of the Eucharist is uh, unfathomable. And, and we don't turn often enough to those spiritual resources. And I think that's, that's the well that we need to drink from. Excellent. Very good words of wisdom. So Mary, once again, the website is personandidentity.com. Please go check out the resource. It is fantastic. Mary Rice Hassan, thank you for joining me on Bioethics on Air. Thank you so much. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics On Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.